BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This episode of Into the Night was made possible by the unwavering support of our dedicated Patreon donors. Their generosity allows us to delve deeper into the mysteries that await us in the dark world of Five Nights at Freddy's. If you're captivated by the secrets we unveil and wish to be a part of our journey, we invite you to explore our Patreon page. By becoming a patron, you not only gain exclusive access to bonus content, behind-the-scenes insights, and special perks, but you also play a vital role in sustaining the future of this podcast. Visit the link provided in the description below to learn more and join the Night Conclave. Hello, and welcome to Into the Night, a Finance of Freddy's podcast. I am your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for one of my favorite moments of the year. No script in front of my face, just me, myself, and a list of questions I have never seen before, all from the amazing listeners of this podcast. Your theories, your questions, and all done as a celebration of said incredible audience, especially over on Spotify, where we are nearing over 70k followers. And should reach that number by the end of March. That is just incredible. It's another milestone hit, and I know I've said this before, but it's one I would never think I would ever reach. Listen, I may make this show, but it really is you guys who help keep this thing going. Spreading the love for the show by sharing it with friends and family, hanging out on our Discord, sharing each other's company, and driving me absolutely insane, and to those amazing people over on Patreon. Your direct support is what keeps this show at such a high quality. I am blessed by the fact that I can do this and have both a place to share my heart and the art I love and to have an audience who shares in that similar passion. So thank you all once again for your support. And I hope that I can continue to make more of this show and future projects for you for as long as you'll have me. But I doubt you want to hear me be more lacrimose. You're here to see me suffer through impromptu questions and pontificate on your theories. Just to preface, all these questions came from the end of the night community, either through email or on a Q&A form. I have never seen these questions yet. They have been curated, so these will be my genuine responses and reaction. Our first question comes from Tall, who asks, What's next for the main show after the security breach audiobook experience? Oh, <laughs> 
What's next for the main show after the security bleach audio book experience? Okay, <laughs> interesting question. Uh, well, Tall, if you were to have asked me that last year, I would have simply stated that the next project after Security Breach would be Ruin, with perhaps some wiggle room in between to do some Tales from the Pizza Plex projects that I wouldn't have been able to squeeze in within the Security Breach audiobook series. Now, I say if I was asked before, because I would have assumed by the time Ruin or Help One or Two released that a majority of the plot issues with the modern lore would have been resolved and therefore I can more easily write out the scripts for the final episodes of Security Breach and more seamlessly transition into the next series. What complicates this in Ruin and Help One or Two is that they did not fix the current plot and in many ways made the overarching story even worse by making some very, very questionable decisions. Just for example, the fact that if you were to take a random sample of Finance of Freddy's fans, ask them what ending to Security Breach Ruin or Help Wanted 2 is the true canon ending. You would get a plethora of responses that all vary on not just which ending is canon, but what said ending is implicating on the narrative. That's particularly enough evidence on how exasperating it can be to write scripts for these episodes. <laughs> That's not to say I don't have my own idea of which ending is canon. I'm fairly certain that Ruin implies that the Princess Quest ending is the true ending for the game. But like, <laughs> that's, that's its own kind of worms, isn't it? Because even if the intent when they were creating Security Breach was to always follow up the next entry with the Princess Quest ending, the final product showcases it as the least polished and unfinished ending from Security Breach's botched release. So seriously, how am I supposed to write an episode on that ending when even the game itself doesn't have the characters acknowledge the ending or what they're even doing to achieve it. Gregory says nothing about the arcade cabinets themselves, nor does the game ever articulate how they interact with Glitztrap and Vanessa in any capacity. How am I supposed to write the meaning behind the Princess Quest games when they literally make no sense in any capacity? For the Maid Byzantine, as any argument of symbolism is completely invalidated now that Help Wanted 2 revealed it to be more real in a narrative sense than a symbolic one. I mean, we are now faced with the knowledge when which our cast of characters did in fact directly interact with both the princess, whose identity is still unclear, and for some reason Old Man Consequences, in this quasi-supernatural digital realm? It's just a mess, one of which, even after two game releases, we will still need more games or books to release in order to make a complete story out of, which is sad to say. So to answer your question, Tall, once the Security Breach audiobook is completed, you can expect that I will be doing Ruin shortly after. However, with both the Into the Pit game and the Click Team game building an auspicious reputation, if those games release and rekindle that original, immersive Final Fantasy's charm, regardless of their connective tissue to the modern lore, I will talk about those first. Despite enjoying making Security Breach episodes, there is a level of, this probably isn't the right word, but dread I have whenever I have to write scripts for them, when they are not the Tales books. I often have to hold my jabs and criticisms back in an effort to boost the overall story, which can lead to some great moments, I'm not gonna lie. 
in the previous episode, for example, with Monty being so bullish that he just stood still and looked one direction completely blind to Gregory walking right past him, that's, that's not exactly how it goes in the game. In reality, for those who unfortunately have played the game, you know that even after extensive patching, Monty is still broken during that section in basically just A poses on his spawn point, which isn't exactly something I could ignore when translating the game into an audiobook format since stating that you would have to you know, hide from him would be a lie. Especially since, according to Steel Wool, they are content with the game's current condition, so word from God, or at the very least his angels, this is working as intended. All of this just works. I just feel like these problems will become tenfold once I get to ruin, and I don't truly want to be known as the vindictive FNAF podcast, you know? So if I can push that aside to recharge the batteries, so to speak, and focus less on the critical analysis and more on the artistic side of the coin to create something I think everyone along with myself can bask and enjoy in, that would be fantastic. Great question, Tall. Thank you for listening and for chatting on our Discord, by the way. Our next question comes from Nefarious, who asks, are you working on any other spinoffs? Great question. And yes, we actually have three different projects currently in the works right now. Some related to Final Freddy's, some not. Uh, some long-form content similar to the podcast, some of it short-form. But it's all based on various patches of mine and taking what I learned from this podcast and adapting it into new formats. The first project we're working on is actually based on one of my favorite franchises of all time, Pokemon. And it's combining it with my more modish passion of mixology. I take a Pokemon, I look at its type, its design, its signature move if it has one, and I try my best to create a recipe that crafts a cocktail that mimics it in some capacity. Two of these episodes are currently available on our Patreon, and the plan is to have a good backlog on the Patreon up before they release to the public. Perhaps. But so far it has been super cute, super fun. It's been nice to share just a different hobby of mine in my own whimsically centric manner. Doubly so because I always wear a vest and, and tie during it, and the ribbing I get in the comments, it, it makes me blush. Uh, the second project I am working on is another long-form content series, as I get a lot of comments on which people say they like to listen to the podcast as they are working, or going to sleep. Apparently the episode link combined with my voice, which I personally find to be somewhere on the noise spectrum to be approximal to a cat and dog fighting, is apparently soothing to some people. Y'all are just too nice, you know that. But I did want to try to replicate that in another project of video essays with the specific series focusing more on various video games, as it is my favorite art form. And I would love to share my love and passion for it when it comes to other games beyond the realm of Finance of Freddy's. Finally, the last project we are working on, as well as the biggest, is a Five Nights at Freddy's AU, which will eventually become its own audio drama series. Updates on this project are ongoing, and Patreon members already have an inkling for what's in store. The only thing I can truly reveal so far about it is that it respects and takes inspiration from all entries in the FNAF universe. So I'm not just lampshading over the Steel Wool era, I am paying its respect. But it's been a pretty fun project to work on so far, and I can't wait to share more details about it when I can. Thank you so much for that question, Nefarious. Next up, a question from Xavier Bustamante who asks, do you have any hobbies? What is the coolest hat you have? Great question, Xavier. I 
guess I already mentioned my venture into mixology, and it'd probably be boring if I just said I like to play video games or enjoy reading and writing since I think that's evident enough already. So instead I'll answer with uh, tabletop games. I enjoy doing Dungeons and Dragons on the weekend with some of my best friends that I made in uh, college. And I have an on-again, off-again relationship with Warhammer 40k when it comes to the hobbyist side of the game. The problem is just how expensive that hobby is. For how much you pay for plastic models, paints, brushes, etc., you think you'd be putting a down payment on a house. But I, I do enjoy the game, except for 10th edition. I think GW missed the mark there. Then again, I played the World Eaters in the Farside Enclave, so maybe I'm just mad that my armies are bad in this edition. Skill issue. As for the coolest hat I have, well, I think I have mentioned before my white collection of flat caps, but believe it or not, none of them take the title of the coolest hat I have. I frequently wear them when I'm out, but none of them take the crown, and no, I don't have one of those either. Instead, one time my family went on vacation in Arizona, we hit a small little tourist town slash park where the entire place was a replicated late 1800s atmosphere. There were jerky shops, horse racing, and buildings with saloon doors. One of the buildings we went into was a vintage antique store where they sold various items with little pamphlets that showcased its history, you know, who owned it, what it was used for, where it was found, how old it is, etc., etc. One of these items that immediately caught my eye was a dark green bowler hat with a brown sash and rim. I bought it immediately and has been the coolest hat in my entire collection, which I have never, not once, worn publicly. I totally, once I got it, not for, oh gosh, about a year, found every excuse after excuse to pull it out for special occasions or non-special occasions. Look, I was in middle school when I got it. Leave me alone. Up next, we have a lore question from Phantom Phoenix, who asks, Why does Molten Freddy have a melted red and white face, but the blob later on in Security Breach has the face of the original colored Funtime Freddy if the original became Molten Freddy? Also, if Vanessa was the possessed tester in Help Wanted, why is there male heavy breathing when you hide from Grim Foxy in the Corn Maze minigame and when you put on the Vanny mask? Uh, good questions. To answer the latter when it comes to the male heavy breathing, that is simply a case of Steewall being a bit lazy in the audio department. The breathing SFX that's used was the same breathing Scott used for FNAF 2, which is a stock sound, and they just reused it again for that section. It's unfortunately not that deep. As for your inquiry about the blob, or as some data miners have now started to refer to it as the tangle, which is that massive pool of wires and animatronic corpses that reside beneath the Free Fazbear Pizza Place, just above the labyrinth where all the scrap animatronics met their end in Final Fantasy VI. The blob really doesn't have any lore. Originally, I assumed its only purpose was Scott catching on to a plot hole when everyone thought Glistrap was William Afton, which has now been made dubious in both the Tales books and Ruin, where in which he indirectly contradicted pre-established lore that stated that Bolton Freddy had a large quantity of remnant in its makeup. Thus, if William was capable of surviving, then by all accounts, Molten Freddy should more than likely also have survived in some state. That, or in a similar manner, if William became Glistrap because they scanned circuit ports of Springtrap, Scraptrap, 
into the Freddy Fazbear virtual experience, are we just to assume they missed all the other scrap animatronics whose souls could have also resided within the respective mechanical tombs? But now that Glitch Trap and by extension Burn Trap have now all fallen under the banner of the Mimic, regrettably, the Blob has been left with relatively little purpose to truly grasp onto. I mean, that's been made evident by the fact that Ruin only had a cameo in the very beginning of the game because Scott and Steelwolf clearly had no idea what to do with it yet. Alternative theories posit the Blob could potentially be the victims of the Mimic from the Tales epilogue stingers, their souls powering this massive refuge of parts and scraps littered around the FPS location. But it doesn't ex exactly explain all the past animatronics and brand new Funtime Freddy mask, which then sparked the secondary theory to that the initial one that the Blob's parts come from the animatronics of the Freddy Fazbear Funtime Delivery Service, aka the FNAF AR app special delivery. Rest in peace, you terrible, terrible product. The problem with that is so many other factors of that game's lore was never fully showcased due to Security Bridge's delay. We only know more about it because when the game was active, data miners were able to look into the files and discover previously unseen assets. And even if we utilize said unseen content as canon, none of it ever came into play in Security Breach. Vanessa is described in a completely different appearance to how she appears in Security Breach. Lewis, the one character mentioned in Security Breach from AR, has a completely different occupation for Fazbear Entertainment as seen in AR. And let's not also forget the fact that Special Delivery's concept as a whole just... It, it full-on breaks the entire Final Fantasy world if it's canon. Like, are we really going to believe that Fazbear Entertainment can seriously, seriously get away with having murder robots just roam the Utah area in mass and somehow not get in trouble for it. Yeah, no. So given the fact as we currently know it, which is very little to be honest, I will employ my favorite tool, Occam's Razor. The simplest solution is usually the correct one. The Blob, by all accounts, is probably the aftermath of Molten Freddy of the FFPS fire. Whether or not the clown bear himself is still there, we're not sure. And it's likely that if he is still in there, the prolonged period of possession, isolation, and influx of agony has stamped out any remaining humanity and psyche he had remaining, leaving only a mechanical beast reacting purely on instinct behind. As to why the mask isn't the same as Molten Freddy's mask in FPS, my theory is it's the same reason why Circus Baby's mask and the Puppet's mask are too present despite both characters being in completely different states in FFPS compared to their iconic appearances. Steel will just reuse the models they had of all three characters to make the blob from Help Wanted. Once again, Steel will only get marching orders from Scott until we get more info on how the partnership between both parties work, we have to operate on the little details we have on their communication, which comes mainly from Lewis Dawkins, aka Dawkos, interview with him prior to the release of Security Breach. Where in producer, um, Ray McCaffrey, uh, he lets slip that numerous times in development of the game, Scott would tell them to add things in, and Ray would email Scott back telling him he had no idea what any of it meant, and Scott simply would respond back with, I know. Combine that with Killing Goths and the, the Sizzle Occasions cast comments on 
Scott's inclination for probable deniability when working on his projects, it's not an unreasonable conclusion to make that the blob was a result of Steewall getting the concept for a character without being told exactly who said character was or what it was supposed to look like beyond the basic description of massive tower of wires with a Funtime Freddy head. At least that's the only thing that makes sense to me. <laughs> uh, great question, Phantom. Thank you so much for listening. Up next, let's do this one from Marcus Gaines. Lovely to hear you from Marcus, who asks, do you think it's too late to revitalize interest in Vanny, or could they still salvage her via retcon, delving deep into her character? I love Vanny, but she is terribly underutilized like most MCU villains nowadays. Lol. <laughs> First, uh, accurate description of Vanny. Honestly, if there, was, if there was any character that got screwed over most by the modern lore, it was Vanny. Such an interesting concept of a possessed African acolyte, yet never even given the chance to even attempt to take the spotlight in her own game. Set up as the next antagonist going forward after Help Wanted, is in Security Breach for less than two minutes. Only made a brief faux cameo in Ruin, it only appears at the very end of Help Wanted 2 despite the fact that nobody cares. Nobody cares! There could have been an attempt to salvage her if Help Wanted 2 didn't have an ending in which it heavily implies Vanny overcame her glitch trap influence and fully killed the virus. But a massive component of the problematic modern FNAF writing is that they take no accountability of the previous attempts at getting across their narrative, nor the community's response to it thereafter. The Princess Quest ending being the true ending of Security Breach is that exact conundrum. I'm not denying that originally the Princess Quest ending was probably always the true ending, but because the actual game itself made so little effort to highlight it in comparison to other more prominent conclusions, it comes across as jarring and tone-deaf to the room when Ruin just alludes to it being the true events to occur thereafter, which, ironically, is exactly what Fanny's squishing Glistrap felt like in Help Wanted 2. I had no reaction to it beyond the fact that the set piece itself looked cool, but the meaning behind it was so hollow because there was absolutely no build-up to it at all. They built their monumental moment on such a rocky foundation that's already falling apart the moment they showcase it. That's before we get into Vanessa from the movie, whom I didn't exactly mind, but holy crap can her role be summarized as the verbal on standby Five Nights of Freddy's lore exposition machine. As for retcons, I'm hesitant. Even now, a retcon should be a last resort for a writer, and it should be only be used for two specific reasons. Number one, you are replacing nothing with something. A good example of this in FNAF is Charlie being the marionette, despite the marionette being originally possessed by a young boy, or Michael being the night guards throughout the games. These retcons aren't exactly sinful, because what was originally there was little more than proof of concept. The puppet is possessed by Afton's first victim. Freddy's as a night guard. Both are still true even after their respective retcons, but these new, never before nor initially thought of additions come across a lot more cleanly since it wasn't contradicting the core of the previously established information and asked the plot and world building. The only other reason to truly ever retcon something, especially, especially 
if you plan to make a franchise, a world, or a series slash collection of stories is to retroactively remove a mistake in the writing process. Best example I could think of on the top of my head for a more modern day equivalent would be the time turners from Harry Potter. Time travel being a form of magic that the wizarding world is capable of brings so many questions into said world, which is why the very next book, oh, look at that, the Ministry of Magic literally confiscated all time turners and destroyed them. Now, that's a more quote-unquote natural way of retconning an element of your story by having an event in the universe alter the status quo, but unlike the previous example of Mike and Shirley, it's very easy to see between the lines with the time turner and recognize the writer is trying to plug up a plot hole they inadvertently created and is meta-narratively trying to course correct. With Vanny, it's difficult because to retcon Vanny now may be too little too late. Because honest to God, I'm not sure what more you can do with her. Her arc, if you can stomach to call it that, is concluded. Glitztrap is dead. Her role in the story has, for the most part, ceased to exist. That's not to say she couldn't have done more things afterwards, but since the games and books only focus on the one aspect of her, which was the fact she was possessed by Glitztrap and never presented her beyond that one note, if she's tried to stick around to make amends, so to speak, it would come across as a hollow because as the audience, we have no reason to think she did anything wrong. It's not like Michael where him attempting to locate William or sacrificing himself to Circus Baby so she can escape, we can at least relate the reasoning to it being part of the bite of 83 and his desire to probably redeem himself for his abhorrent actions in the past that still haunt him. So, Vane sticking around is not only failed narrative, it's just a worse Michael Afton story. I digress. And as sad as it is to say, I think the right move for the Finest Freddy story moving forward would be to just drop Vanny entirely. Despite having a two ending on a wet fart with reverb note for the character, let that be the end of her. She got a conclusion, at least, and we don't need to refer back to her ever again. Maybe after a few more injuries come in, a few stories without her or the Meg being present, maybe we can come back with her and try some new things out. But until then, if she continues to stick around, I have a feeling it's only going to result in ticking off the audience more than win them over. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game that lets you take command of your own team of your favorite Marvel superheroes and villains to take on interdimensional threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse in an action-packed turn-based squad-tactic RPG extravaganza. Embark on an extensive campaign, completing challenging missions as you fight your way through the expansive Marvel Universe, collect valuable loot, enhance the powers of your favorite characters, and level up to acquire new gear, unlock formidable attacks and abilities, and customize your characters with costumes inspired by the most infamous storylines. Great stuff! Did that get your attention? As we speak, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating its six-year anniversary. But here's the real kicker. New users signing up through our link and using the promo code MAXPOOL get an exclusive treat. You'll instantly add the Merc with the Mouth Deadpool to your roster, complete with character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, and gear. Also, 
Please note that these sponsorships help support the production and the hours we put into creating content for you. So downloading this game, using the link in the description, and giving it a try would help out this podcast immensely. The game is free, and using the code MAXPOOL gets you a ton of free starting loot. So you got nothing but to gain for giving the game a try right now. Thank you once again to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Next question we got comes from Victoria, who is not only a supporter of the End of the Night Conclave, but also the queen of video game glitches. Seriously, I played Deep Rock Collect with her once and somehow ran into never-before-seeing bugs every single round. Whether it be the procedurally generated terrain just deciding to make it impossible to find objectives, to erratic enemy behavior, oh, and my personal favorite, the drill are just saying screw gravity and traveling across air to get where it needs to go. Sorry, that probably didn't make any sense to any of you who don't play DRG, but I'm still not over that session. Anyway, Victoria asks, what has been your favorite topic you've covered on the podcast and why was it your favorite? What has been your least favorite topic you've covered and why was it your least favorite? Thank you for all the hard work you put into these episodes. Oh, thanks, Victoria. And great question as well. I know what my favorite topic is, but I feel compelled to acknowledge the previous episode, Shadow's Crying number eight. As many of you have humorously pointed out, Philosophical Nick made a delightful appearance in that episode, and exploring the deeper meanings and themes of a story and connecting them to the artistic inspiration is a hat I thoroughly enjoyed wearing. Even a series like Five Nights at Freddy's often ridiculed for its intricate lore, the story still can carry profound threads. However, no topic has brought me as much joy as covering episode 20, Count the Ways. Yes, yes, ah uh, yes, I know, I know. The guy who loves Funtime Freddy loved covering the Funtime Freddy story, but I can't help it. At the time, Count the Ways wasn't just the best novella, it stood out as the finest piece of writing in the entire Five Nights at Freddy's mythos. Its exploration of life and death was exceptionally well-crafted, with a captivating narrative that maintained reader interest through cleverly interconnected viewpoints throughout time, the novella's use of symbolism and its transformation of the previously one-dimensional Funtime Freddy was masterful, elevating the character to an S-tier status. To add the perfect cherry on top, the story unfolds during Christmas, my favorite holiday of the year. What makes it even more special is its acknowledgement of the celebration in December, not merely as the day of Jesus' birth, but as a symbolic tribute to life during the winter solstice, coinciding with the harshest weather and symbolically tying it to death. The book is so well written, it hurts. Then on the other hand, when we come back to my least favorite topic. Now some of you may be suspecting that the answer will be the mimic. 
But truthfully, no. Because the mimic, while abhorrent in the writing and execution, was simply a failed idea that didn't have enough backing. That, and if you have listened to our Mimic episode, you know that I had fun discussing how absolutely atrocious the character's lore is with Avix, so I actually had a lot of fun with the Mimic. The next obvious conclusion would be Security Breach, Ruiner had one or two, right? Well, those games were painful, but no, not my least favorite. My least favorite topic I have ever covered was none other than Golden Freddy. Golden Freddy is painful to talk about for me because of all the aspects of the Golden Age lore that has aged the worst, I can at the very least look at Final Fantasy Freddy's 4 and tie it into Michael Apton's story, so its original charm hasn't yet dissipated. Golden Freddy, on the other hand, is the most frustrating character in the entire series to theorize, let alone talk about. This can go on the record. Golden Freddy is terrible for lore discussion because there is no genuine story to him anymore only the illusion of one. Originally, there was this mysterious ore that surrounds Golden Freddy, the fifth victim of the MCI, who seemed so much more powerful supernaturally than all the other children, who needed all four other children, plus the puppet, to be finally put to peace, made even better after FFPS confirmed the identity of said puppet to be that of Charlotte, Henry Emily's daughter, and therefore left the only realistic conclusion for the crying child of FNAF 4 to become is Golden Freddy. But nope. Then UCN happened. Then the survival logbook happened. I hate it. I hate Cassidy and I hate Andrew because it's so unsatisfactory to have literal, randomly introduced characters to just be uber powerful and important for absolutely no reason. I don't like talking about Golden Freddy. I don't enjoy theorizing about him. And I still stand by my statement that the best story for Final Fantasy lore overall is the bite victim, being Golden Freddy, with Cassidy as their real name. At least with that storyline, everyone wins. Irregardless of the fact that Cassidy herself isn't exactly confirmed to be part of the game canon, since UCN implies Golden Freddy to be male and the only Cassidy in the FNAF lords in the novel trilogy, where in which the character was not only female, but also not Golden Freddy. <sighs> Do you understand why it's frustrating to talk about? Alrighty, shake it off. Let's see the next question we got. It's from Juan Patricio Gonzalez. I apologize if I pronounced that wrong. Who writes, Where do you get your passion of writing and producing from? And what keeps you going in hard times? Thank you for producing your incredible podcast and for posting every comment I write on your episode. It means a lot to me. All the way from Mexico, JP Graz. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, JP. Crazy to think I have listeners all the way from Mexico. Wow, thank you so much for listening. As for your uh, question, I think it has less to do with writing and producing and more so about what I am passionate about. And while there are various factors that play to that, just to name a handful, being able to express myself and my praises to a specific artist's work and go deeper in its meaning, which was the initial spark for the podcast. The continuation was definitely supported by the comments of praise and encouragement from all of you who listen. I don't know any small quote-unquote content creator who isn't attempting to skirt the system and is genuinely attempting to produce high-quality work who will tell you that even one comment or like or share could be a complete shift in energy levels in a day. So, in a manner of speaking, both the franchise itself and the community that blossomed around this podcast has been a motivating factor for me continuing it. 
But that doesn't so much explain the passion for it, does it? Because if it was just tied to my responsibilities, or if I needed to produce an episode to, say, pay rent, let's say, I would be doing the podcast out of obligation and necessity, not passion. Don't get me wrong, if I could switch to doing this full-time, it would be a dream come true. But it's important to put these things into perspective when discussing passion. Despite both passion and responsibility being often intrinsically linked, and for me that primarily revolves around religio, with meaning, if we are defining meaning as being connected to something that has value beyond that of my existence. Okay, let me... I am an avid reader and follower of a great modern-day philosopher and neuroscientist, Dr. John Brevetkin, and I believe his articulation of the definition of the meaning of life has a formula, is a great basis for determining and understanding where passion comes from. In his words and research, he concluded that meaning can be best described through a lens of relativity, but not exactly how things are relative to you, but how you are relevant to others. And he formalized that into two questions. What do you want to exist even if you don't? And two, how much of a difference do you make to it now? And if you can answer both of these questions, you have a pretty good grasp of your purpose in life, and that worldview can be a fuel that allows you to do many great and passionate things. For me, especially when I see comes out of Hollywood, AAA game companies, and so many other now bastardized art forms, I fear that we are losing our ability to tell captivating stories and appreciate how these stories both abscond from reality for a brief moment, but still have these fictitious tales that impart wisdom and inspirations for the audience to absorb instead of being lectured and scolded to. Final Fantasy Freddy's, despite my criticisms of its recent releases, is still one of the few bastions of pure artistic storytelling that exist. And if I can showcase that to a wider audience, or at the very least generate more appreciation for that component of it, and May Viversa create a better appreciation and thought-provoking critical view to listeners on their upcoming stories, future movies, and video games, and not just the world of FNAF, but in future artistic plunges. Not to mention that I would like to contribute to that art form myself as a creative in the future. As long as I've had a pretty good grasp on who I am, I have always wanted to be in some form a storyteller so I need to be able to continuously practice my ability to captivate an audience, to enhance my choice and flow of my words, and my ability to illustrate a world and a point with my voice. So to readjust my monologue <laughs> in a more concise manner, I find continuous passion in doing this project because I find meaning in it. And part of that meaning comes from both being able to share an appreciation for an artist's work and the fuel I receive from those who listen who encourage me to continue, and vice versa, the appreciation I get from knowing I am expanding the way people can articulate, understand, and enjoy the entertainment they love. That was a great question, JP. Thank you for asking, and thank you for listening. Up next, we got another question from an active member of the End of Night community, Void Pyre. Wonderful to see you here, Void, who asks, what is your favorite book slash movie? Also, how was your day? My day has been great, Void. Thank you for asking. I hope you're having a blessed day yourself. Um, I always love getting this question because it is exceedingly difficult for me to come to a consistent answer for my favorite movie. But ever so recently for my favorite book. My favorite book of all time, or at the very least for the past three years, has been Mitch Albom's Five People You Meet in Heaven. 
Even if you're not a religious person per se, I think this book is a great read for someone looking to get a better understanding of purpose and a more positive shift in perspective on our hectic lives. And I was blessed to read that book during the roughest period of my, in all fairness, still young life, during the lockdown of a certain virus, where I was probably my most downtrodden and hopeless. Uh, my parents recommended I read this book during the time and it really helped me motivate myself to get through it all. As for movies, uh, I have a lot of favorite movies that I could watch at any point in time, but I think I have to give it, at least right now, to Sherlock Holmes' The Game of Shadows. Uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s Sherlock Holmes and Jude Law's portrayal of the detective and doctor, it, it's just exquisite. Way superior to the Benedict Cumberbatch portrayal, in my opinion. Uh, Jared Harris is probably the best version of Moriarty I think I've ever seen on screen. Uh, the story is wonderfully crafted, with amazing stakes. The cinematography especially during the chase in the woods, it's incredible. And the mixture of the mystery genre with what could be constituted as a spy thriller, one of the most unique and rewatchable Sherlock Holmes stories ever made. So many wonderful characters, such a great use of humor throughout, amazing action set pieces set during the build-up period of World War I as a backdrop. Oh, what's not to love? For our next question, we have another important member of the internet community, my good friend Avix the Wolf, who asks, Nick, if you had to choose one location to work at, which would it be? Also, which animatronic would you fight? Um, interesting question. I assume you mean Fazbear location. And I hate to say it, but really only one answer. If I'm going to work at any location, it probably would have to be the Freddy Fazbear Mega Pizza Flex. Look, say what you will about the games, and I've said a lot, and Fazbear Entertainment, but the Pizza Flex looks like an amazing place to work, as if long as you can survive the staff bot replacement apocalypse. The Tales books imply that actually Phasma Entertainment pays their human staff pretty darn well during this era, and if I rise enough up the ranks, I can get a high-end apartment in the Phas Towers close by to my work and paid for, and even in lore, the staff bots are so incompetent that the human employees that still exist in Fazbear Entertainment don't feel threatened that their jobs are going anywhere. So all in all, it's a pretty nice gig. Now, when it comes to fighting robots, I mean, let's be honest, if I'm picking a fight, I want to pick a fight I can win. And if there's one animatronic I know it can beat, it's Trash in the Gang. Dude, I could so easily pile drive each of them and dropkick number one crate, alright? And yes, I am saying that I can defeat literal garbage, but look at the rest of the roster and honestly tell me if a human being actually possesses a chance if they are without tools. I think not! Following that up with a question from Gravmaster, who asks, What are your opinions on the Curse of Dreadbeard DLC? P.S. Do you like Batman? I love Batman. He is one of my favorite superheroes. I love the Dark Knights. I love the Arkham games. Bar certain Suicide Squad game. And I love the animated series. Great character, great mythos. Batman's amazing. Uh, reflecting on the Curse of Dreadbeard DLC, truth to be told, that it's, it's left from my thoughts for a while. If I were to give it a rating, I would say it's... Okay, that might sound a bit harsh. It's a solid DLC, albeit a bit pricey for what it offers. It, Just looking back on it, it, I feel sad, you know? Especially when it comes to game design decisions and how apparent the cracks were in that DLC on when Steewall is allowed to go AWOL. Some aspects like the returning plush baby section universally regarded as the worst main game it had wanted, 
and the corn maze plagued by bugs and unfairly locking the true ending behind it felt cheap and unfun. Not to mention the whole collection feeling just a bit too small for its price tag. Uh, that's not to say there isn't anything worthwhile in the package. Build a Mangle, Trick or Treat, and Nightmare Hallway, they were all fantastic minigames to play. The Foxy Pirate Ride, well not especially scary, it's still enjoyable, and it's a replayable experience if you, you want to try that thing over and over and over again. And without a doubt, the highlight of the game is Danger Keep Out. A three-night remix of the original Finance of Freddy's with completely altered mechanics that's an incredible idea. I wish, I wish they'd keep doing more of that. Remixes of older pre-existing games, that would be an incredible idea. So, I guess to say, upon initial release, I might have ranked it, I probably still do, I rank it above Final Fantasy 2 on a tier list. And that's by no means an insult to either game. Uh, I don't harbor any dislike for any game in the golden era, so ranking it above FNAF 2, which, in that particular time frame when it came out, that might have been, I think it still is my least favorite game in the franchise. Which means I still had a great experience, albeit with certain areas where I could see improvements could have been made. Good question. And here comes another one from another fantastic member of the Into the Night Conclave. Uranium is tasty. Don't eat uranium, kids. Who writes, Do you know what you might have done after college, career, or hobby? If so, what? Uh, good question, uranium. And a bit difficult one to answer because... You know, it was really only after I graduated college and I went into the field that I had majored in that I realized how much I truly despised that work. I graduated with a major in marketing, specifically marketing in emerging media. So that entails VR, AR, social media, and other trendy technology. I primarily graduated in that field because I was both informed by advisors in the business sector before I graduated, as well as believed that since I have always considered myself a creative individual, that would be my avenue to do creative work as a career. Truth be told, not really. It was quite the mundane experience, and even worse, one where you really need to know some people in order to make headway. I know that's true for most white-collar work and even blue-collar work, but it's doubly so in the marketing and advertising world. And as an introvert, that means it is rather difficult challenge because the only other metric you can get openings in is through merit. But the requirement of merit are so high nowadays that an entry-level job requires like three to four years experience sometimes. I know that most employers only put that there because they're trying to dissuade people who have no business applying from doing so. But holy crap, does it feel like they are still using that as a sole metric. I did not enjoy that sector of the business world at all. I was way happier in my life when I was working in a bookstore than whenever I was behind a desk writing fluff piece articles that had absolutely no attachment to whatsoever. Doubly so whenever I write, record, or edit these podcast episodes and other projects. If I can give any advice to those in college and high school, really consider where you want to be in 10 years from now. And if you are truly passionate about obtaining a specific career, especially in a professional business environment, start doing components of that job for free. I know that sounds absolutely crazy because your time and work is valuable, but that's just the fact of the matter nowadays. Find opportunities and internships while you are in college and when your life can more easily adjust to it. Because once you graduate, the ability to work your schedule around your time of learning and time to make money starts to dry up. If those internships pay, that's absolutely wonderful. Plus one, but being able to put a few years of experience on your resume is possibly the most invaluable stat associated to you in the job-seeking world. 
quite the serious question this time around, I have to say. Let's see if we can rectify that with Cyberbleach, who asks, when do you think the show will end? Or keep going until the heat death of the universe? Don't think the content well will run out? No. Guess not. All right, well, in response to that question, as much as all good things must come to an end, I don't believe we're anywhere near the conclusion for this show. There's still a wealth of vibrant and Freddy's content to explore, including the books, uh, newer games, and the prospect of delving back into deep dive episodes in episode format I'd love to revive. However, it's, it's crucial to acknowledge that the podcast's longevity is intricately tied to the health and status of the Final Fantasy Freddy's franchise itself. When interest in the series diminishes, the show naturally experiences a decline in viewership. To address this, I am planning on engaging in more projects that venture a bit beyond the realm of Finance of Freddy's. This includes creating more original content, experimenting with the knowledge gained from this podcast, producing video essays into the domains. All these endeavors are united by the ever-present, happy-go-lucky, flat-cap aficionado, Merriam-Webster linguistic enthusiast, yours truly. At least, I genuinely hope you all love me. My ego, though sizable is remarkably delicate and requires constant validation. Wait. Guys, where are you going? Guys? Guys? Okay, we went a little off the rails there. Let's return back to the status quo. Our next question comes from Flynn Sewell, who writes in, Hi, Nick. I love your podcast and listen to it every night to fall asleep. I find it so L-encapsulating FTE. Oh, that's a good reference. I have a theory I want your opinion on. Okay. I believe that the Mimic, wearing the skin of that team from the epilogue, somehow fused with the remains of Scrap Trap to become Burn Trap, because in one of the epilogues, the Mimic is referred to as a Tangle. According to the wiki, maybe the Mimic fused with Molten Freddy to become the Tangle slash the Blob slash Big Freddy Spaghetti. <laughs> that's, the, that's actually an In Denight reference. I appreciate it all. Thank you so much, Flynn. Thank you. Um, now, as a hypothesis... This has been in the theorist discourse for a while, as there has to be some given explanation for the burn trap corpse. Although it is now debatable if that can even be considered canonical in the sense it actually occurred, since it is an alternative ending, we could only elucidate that it could have occurred, right? But let's posit, for the current moment, that burn trap is indeed canon, and thus we have a mystery of how this endoskeleton somehow is wrapped up in the corpse that is covered by the shell of Bonnie. What causes a lot of disagreement and discourse in regards to this theory comes primarily from the opaque conclusion of the scrap animatronics from both the existence of the blob and burn trap, made worse by the fact that the horrendously produced FNAF official character encyclopedia, which insinuated that the blob is indeed the aftermath of not just Molten Freddy, but all the animatronics of the past, the character encyclopedia may be one of the worst pieces of FNAF media ever produced. So many inaccuracies, so many errors, and so many actually idiotic design decisions on a graphic design standpoint alone. I truly, truly despise that book. Now, the easiest to, not so much debunk, but to rebuke, is Burntrap wearing the corpse of Kelly. While by no means this is 100% definitive proof against it, we do know from the final Mimic Stinger that the robot did dispose of Kelly's corpse before moving on to the Jester Springlock costume it eventually get trapped in. So if Burntrap was wearing the corpse of Kelly, 
it would then mean it wore it, took it off, got trapped, and then chose to wear it again. Sounds a little logical, but then again, the implication of the mimic taking off the Jester costume, putting in a burn trap one, it's, it's betoken to that incoherency. Then again, we also cannot ignore the aspect of human error in the writing. After all, despite the fact that the mimic is mentioned to have ear-like protrusions on the top of its head, basically rabbit ears, in the first novella Stinger, every subsequent appearance, including his visual one in Rowan, have left out that design choice. So it is completely possible that the mimic was never supposed to take off Kelly's body, and the writers simply made a mistake and not mentioning it again. As for the Tangle reference, I recall that the mention of a tangled mess was meant to describe the absolute slaughter the Mimic unleashed on the Fazbear engineers, not exactly the Mimic itself, which is why one of the theories for the Blob is that given the choice of wording from the Stinger in describing the aftermath, the Blob could be the Mimic's victims, or at least their agony-infused and manipulating uh, objects. Personally, I don't put a lot of stock into that theory, mainly because a big component people chose to conveniently forget is that there doesn't exist any sign of human body parts in the blob. It is probably made up of robotic endoskeletons, animatronic shell casings, and large tentacle-like wires, the latter of which has always been the more fascinating component of the character discuss for me. Because we can go in circles all day trying to comprehend a debate on whether or not the animatronic models used for the blob are supposed to represent the scraps or some other cast of characters, but those tentacles cannot be the result of agony. They have to come from somewhere. My theory is that the blob is still Molten Freddy, or at the very least what is left of it, which survived the FFPS fire by scrounging for whatever agony slash remnant adjacent object it can get a hold of to stay tethered to this world. When Fazbear Entertainment created the Storyteller Tree, that massive central hub where all the systems and animatronics AI and the Pizzaplex were linked to via branch-like, or almost tentacle-like, wires webbed across the Pizzaplex, that was directly controlled by the Mimic, and subsequently tore it down. Instead of throwing it away, though, they locked it away in the FFPS building, where eventually, Molten Freddy was able to get its hands on it, and its parts for himself. Does this theory have holes? Oh, absolutely. But I can't think of another way that is more satisfying and logical than this one. Up next, we got a wonderful question from none other than Elijah, who asks, What are you looking forward to most for the FNAF 2 movie? For me, it's the possibility of seeing the Withers on screen. Withered Bonnie is my favorite animatronic in the whole series. Good taste. And also seeing Matthew Lillard as Afton in possible flashback scenes. Well... More Matthew Lillard for certain. I think even the most die-hard FNAF movie apologists will tell you if they had one complaint, it would be that Matthew did not get enough screen time in the film. Similar to Josh Hutcherson, they are perfect casting for Michael and William. And really the only nitpick I have for the performance is the absence of the British accent. But given that they may still want to do the after-filming story between Michael and Will in the sequel, I kind of understand why they didn't do it. They probably didn't want to make it too obvious by having both the characters share a very clear similarity for viewers to pick up on, especially for FNAF fans who would be keen to notice it. As for what I am most looking forward to seeing, I love the Withers, but I'm hesitant to say either them or the toy robots since we don't yet know 
what games of storyline the sequel is taking inspiration from. For all we know, it could be we could be in for a doozy, and the sequel could take inspiration from the Twisted One, which would be raising a ton of red flags for me. If we take the movie itself in a vacuum, and if we change the inquiry to what I am most excited to see expanded upon in the sequel to the original movie, I would say that my excitement is divided between two facets. A narrative component, and a lore slash fanservice component. For a narrative, I really want to know why William Afton kidnapped and killed Garrett. We know he's a serial killer, and one that targets children because of his own cowardly nature. But it is rather odd for him to target Sean both A, through the means of actual kidnapping, and B, outside an environment where he is neither familiar in or at the very least comfortably in control at, which to me signifies a deeper suggestion as to why he both targeted Garrett and kidnapped him in broad daylight, you know? Now, for lore slash fanservice, call me a hypocrite, but I want more Fazbear Entertainment. We did not get enough of the company in the movie, just the bare amount that we got an idea of how the company operates and presented itself. But Fazbear Entertainment's comical ineptitude and over-exaggerative corruption is such a massive part of appeal of the finance of his world. While it can be a little much, Security Breach in particular made the joke a little grating after a while, it's one of the many facets that's part of the the charm of FNAF and its setting that I hope gets expounded on in the sequel. Great question, Elijah. Let's follow that up with a question from Frank Respite, who writes in, Who is your favorite FNAF character and why? Could be for lore reasons, maybe just like the design, whatever. There are a ton of characters out there, and I'm curious. By the way, I love what you do, and I really hope you never stop doing it. I get excited each time a new episode comes out ever since day one. Oh. Thank you so much, Frank. That's that's very sweet of you. Well, most people know, but my favorite character in the entire FNAF mythos is Fun Time Freddy. His design is unique, his lore is incredible, Kilgoth's performance is mesmerizing, his development Count the Ways is one of the best written stories in the entire FNAF mythos. In fact, if you allow me to um, expound on my love for the character, I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned this, but... I'm going to now. So much of FNAF's modern lore would have been fixed if they continued the storyline with Funtime Freddy than whatever they are attempted to do with the Mimic. Think about it. The original scanning of the circuit boards in Help Wanted would not only be more clear with FFPS prior, but also follow up on that snippet of Molten Freddy having a large quantity of remnant, which gives him wiggle room to survive. He would be as problematic to resurrect as William Afton since he is not only one of his many constructs and not the man himself, so Michael and Henry's sacrifice would never be jeopardized upon his reintroduction, and because his nature as a soul-slash-artificial intelligence is purposely vague, the concept of him morphing from animatronic to computer virus isn't as jarring as the original storyline of William becoming one through possession. Even Vanny still works, and you can make her the major antagonist of Security Breach without having Funded Freddy completely usurping her, by making the plot about Vanny attempting to rebuild Molten Freddy, which would then explain how the blob got so massive and full of various scraps and parts. And on top of that, you wouldn't even have to change Vanny's design and be a representative of a rabbit, since she would be a puppet of Funted Freddy, the robot with a bonny hand puppet as a friend. And finally, 
it would have made for such a cool evolution of both the character of Final Freddy himself and the storyline of Final Freddy's. It kind of reminds me of Fawful from the Mario & Luigi games, this side character who's memorable but second fiddle to the main antagonist. Similar to how Final Freddy was always a tertiary antagonist compared to William Afton or Circus Baby, but eventually they get the spotlight all to themselves and take on the role of a major antagonist. And you get this amazing through line and their journey of this one character through the FNAF storyline. Not to mention that since the mimic is pretty much just following its programming and not really doing much beyond that, so its motives are not only simple, they're kind of overplayed in the robot antagonist trope. Fontaine Freddy as an AI who it were to take his depiction and count the ways and flesh out even more, both enjoys and is fascinated with death, with knowledge of human anatomy and history, and is curious to experiment with the various methods of dispensing death onto his victims, in addition to his strange sense of moral superiority where he is well aware what he's doing is wrong, yet still presents himself as above humans who are ignorant and selfish to their fellow man, adds a layer of complexity to the character you don't really get in the mimic, especially if we go deeper into his backstory and lore and answer whether or not he is indeed possessed by a singular soul, an MCI victim, or is an AI whose personality was given life through the remnant of the MCI victims. Alright, next question we got is from a random FNAF fan. No, seriously, that's his username. <laughs> Who asks, what is your least favorite Final Fantasy character and why? And what is your favorite video game besides Final Fantasy if you have one? Oh, this is an easy one. My favorite video game of all time is Luigi's Mansion. That is my childhood game. The first game I have ever beaten to full completion, and I ran that thing back over and over and over and over again in my younger days. That game is the definition of charming. I can't help but smile over almost every little part of that game's design and atmosphere. And its gameplay, it's incredible. So satisfying from a game design and sound design perspective and endlessly replayable. There is a reason why Luigi is my favorite Mario character and Luigi's Mansion is that reason. Honestly, I, I could talk about Luigi's Mansion forever, so I, I'll just leave it at that. As for my least favorite character, which is an interesting question, well, I feel like I've made my piece on the Mimic on a story standpoint, so I won't choose him. And I have made my thoughts very clear on Golden Freddy from a Lauren Theodorson standpoint in this episode, so I won't choose him either. So, if I were to pick a character, let's say from a gameplay point of view, the character that frustrates me the most whenever I had to replay the series is Phantom Foxy. The Phantoms in general are probably my least favorite animatronic quote-unquote lineup in the entire series both from a design standpoint and a gameplay one. FNAF 3, in a nutshell, kind of has a flawed gameplay loop that, I'll be honest, I think help one it proved works better in a VR real-time format than the standard FNAF point-and-click style. And the Phantoms are one of the reasons why that gameplay loop is so frustrating. For most of the game, the Phantoms are generally pretty easy to manage, but as the game progresses, Holy crap, the window to react comes close to zero seconds. But hey, at least with the exception to Phantom Balloon Boy, you can just attempt to avoid the phantoms by knowing where each phantom spawns and trying to stay away from certain camera views. That's when Phantom Foxy comes in, somehow ready to flip you the double bird despite having a hook for a hand, and ruins your entire game. Since Foxy, 
similar to Phantom Freddy, spawns in the office, he is an always active threat. But unlike Freddy, whom you could avoid by keeping your eyes on one of your monitors while Freddy is moving, Foxy just straight up punishes you for trying to play the game. No way to preempt it, no way to stop it from happening, it just, it just is. And it's not like I have anything against distraction enemies in FNAF games. I think the Minaritas and Sister Location are a great example of a time-consuming threat done right. They're annoying, sure, but they are still manageable and make the challenge fun because you have to adjust your strategy to work around them. There is no added layer to Phantom Foxy. It's just the game blatantly punishing you for daring to try to play the game. One more question to wrap up the Q&A. We'll end things off tonight with a question from The Doctor Is In, who asks, I am always interested in hearing people's thoughts on this question. Do you think your relationship with FNAF has become more strenuous in recent years? With stuff like Secure Breach and the books, do you find it increasingly more difficult to enjoy the series? You know what? An excellent question to end this Q&A off with, especially given the year we've had and kind of the change in tonality this podcast has had over the last year. Do I think my relationship with FNAF has become more strenuous? The answer is no. I still love this franchise. I still have massive respect for Scott, and I want nothing but the best for it and for it to continue to succeed in telling incredible horror stories and bringing more people into the fold of its fantastical world of supernatural wonders and scientific monstrosities. That being said, I am not the child I once was back in high school, back when this game series helped me get through bad times and take my mind off pressing concerns, allowing me to have a chance to breathe and relax. Ironically enough, for a horror game series, I know. I am older, and I hope a lot wiser, to the point that I can more readily recognize flaws in the absence of care that newer projects in the FNAF sphere have. And I am not bold enough to pretend that Steel Wool Games, and even FNAF AR to extend, do challenge my once pristine perception of this franchise in a story I hold in high regard. That being said, Binance of Freddy's hasn't followed the trajectory of many other franchises from my upbringing that I've had to leave behind. In some cases, I outgrew them, I found something superior, or I simply recognized that what they once were is no longer reflected in their current state. Star Wars serves as a poignant example I once adored that galaxy far, far away. The, the Clone Wars ranks among my all-time favorite TV shows. However, following the Disney takeover and the substantial alterations to the universe, along with what I perceive as blatant mishandling of the source material, I've come to acknowledge that it has transformed into something of a hollow experience for me, lacking the heart and soul it once possessed. This is a significant reason why I haven't started regretting my decision to stay engaged with and continue supporting the Finance of Freddy's world. While I've chosen not to purchase Steel Wool games for the time being, it doesn't mean I won't reconsider if they demonstrate their competence as capable developers. Despite my criticisms and complaints about their projects, it remains apparent that they are passionate and invest a great deal of heart into their work. This doesn't automatically guarantee in quality, but does indicate that it was crafted with the best intentions. It wasn't designed to be soulless or a mere cash grab, unlike certain examples found in the realm of AAA live service games, Anthem, Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League, or insert AAA live service game here. Moreover, 
Not every aspect of the Final Fantasy franchise has seen a decline simply because the main series might be lacking in some regard. The Tale series emerged as a wonderful addition, marked by a notable improvement over the Fazbear Fright series by maintaining a more consistent and FNAF-like tone throughout. The upcoming Into the Pit game looks very promising, even from, a small te even from just the small teaser we've seen. It's commendable to witness Scott exploring collaborations with new publishers for various games, despite some choices being a bit questionable. <coughs> a certain Roblox game, <coughs> pain. Click Team Studios, the Fazbear Fanverse Initiative, and numerous other fantastic projects are in the works. Even if you find the current lore and game series somewhat lacking, it's now easier than ever to shift your focus and vote with your wallet for aspects of the franchise that you do prefer. This is precisely my plan if Into the Pit lives up to the hype, and I have complete faith that it will. And with that, I believe that brings us to a good stopping point for tonight's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. It truly helps us broaden our reach. Consider following us on our Twitter at Fazbear Podcast, joining our Discord, or supporting us on our Patreon or merch store using the various links in the description of this episode. Thank you all once again for submitting your questions to the Q&A. It's always wonderful to hear your thoughts and your questions and just to interact with you guys. Not so much one-on-one, -on -one, but if you want to do that, hang out on our Discord. I'm a lot more frequently active there, and I feel like it's a bit more better of a place to interact, discuss uh, various topics, doesn't have to be FNAF, with my audience than, say, social media and Twitter where, you know, you uh, want to commit a uh, B7. Once again, I've been your host, Nick, and thank you once again for listening. Have a good night, and drive home safe. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.